0: You're listening to Impact Exposure.
1: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is
0: Impact Exposure.
2: You're listening to Impact Exposure, and I'm Emmanuel Berry. Today on Exposure, we talk to a nutritionist about organic foods here from a Tejano sound ban- Hear from the, Te- the Tejano Sound Band and chat with the cast of the Riverwalk Theaters production of Spring Awakening. But first Impact's Gabrielle Saldivia takes us inside campus on to Spartan Remix. <laughs>
3: Last week, the annual event Spartan Remix was held at The Rock, bringing hundreds of students to experience and explore the cultures and community groups of their peers. In its fifth year, Spartan Remix hosted interactive tents put on by student groups within the Council of Racial and Ethnic Studies and the Council of Progressive Students. Students working the tents aimed at not only spreading awareness about their groups but also entertaining visitors with games and activities. MSU students and community members also provided entertainment through performances during the event. Including poetry. Ever since the day I was born, I was taught to fight the power deadly, but something tells me this is kind of shape- Music And traditional dancing Because of the successful turnout, volunteers and staff working the event felt the pressure to keep the event organized. Senior Sean Patrick is a student that works on the committee for the event He said that one of the biggest challenges the staff faces is keeping everything running smoothly
1: It is incredibly hard because more than the people, is just keeping everything coordinated um, Making sure everything goes off on schedule, making sure everybody's where they need to be, when they need to be there We're just proud that the event is going off as good as it is There's always going to be catches when you do something this big, but it's going well
3: for junior Jose Carmona, the large crowd only added to his experience of visiting Spartan Remix for the first time.
4: The atmosphere, it's very live, it's, it's very involving, and there's so many activities to do I don't even know where to go.
3: It was not only students that attended Spartan Remix. Assistant Director of the Lesbian, Gay, and Transgender Resource Center, Dee Hobert, was one of the MSU staff members working a tent at the event. She said she makes a special effort to come to Spartan Remix over other university events like Sparticipation and U-Fest.
5: I think that this is the heart and soul of what it means to be at
0: Michigan State. Part of this educational experience is learning how to, how to move
6: through the world and be successful in a world that contains people who are different from
3: you. While the prospect of free food was a draw for some students,
2: ready dogs. All
5: right.
3: Woo. For others like Patrick, it was the opportunity to have fun while learning about others' cultures.
1: Honestly, like just seeing the different communities come out, seeing freshmen come in—they have no idea what it is. But it's like the educational aspect, while you can have this much fun, is just great. To, I mean, it's, it's the best thing about it to me.
3: For Impact Exposure, I'm Gabriela Saldivia.
1: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure.
1: Now, back to
2: Impact exposure. exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Exposure. Today on our show, we are going to address a subject we typically save for sex exposure, but Janelle Marie is here to talk about the STD Project. Uh, so, what is the STD Project?
10: Hi, um, yeah, the STD Project is a website, it's an independent website based on eradicating the stigma surrounding STDs. We do that by encouraging education through storytelling and resource recommendations, all in an effort to open the subject up, allow people to come into a safe space, find information, find stories, and um, it's all part of eradicating the stigma.
2: So why did you decide to start this project?
10: Sure. Um, I started the project... Just this year, launched April of 2012. Um, The reason I started that was I've actually lived with genital herpes for 14 years now. And I had thought about this when I was like 17, 18 years old, but I was scared to, I couldn't tell anybody about it. Um, I had a tough time um, sometimes in high school with it. Mm -hmm. High school is a scary place to begin with, Um, and then you couple that with having an STD, that uh, something that's taboo that nobody talks about. And when I did share it with friends, sometimes really horrible things happened. People were mean, told stories, um, and there were some painful experiences in that, and I didn't know where to turn, didn't have anyone to talk to. So around 17, 18, a couple years after I contracted an STD, I thought, you know, I really want to do something to help other people. So they don't have to go through the same experience I did It doesn't have to be so hard. And the last um, 10 or so years, I've I've been really successful, successful in my education, successful professionally. I've had great relationships. It's never hindered a relationship. And a lot of those myths and and fears that people have about STDs are – they're myths, but they're warranted. They're understandable. Mm -hmm. But the intent is to say – it doesn't have to be just that way it's not all the information that you're hearing there's a different side of the story so the intent is to share that other side of the story and make it easier for other people who are contracting with who are contracting or living with an std
2: uh, can you talk a little bit about what types of information your site has? So you offer um, general information, but I, I've looked on the site and it also seems like you offer dating, how to date with an STD and, and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about that type of information, why you provide that?
10: Yeah, there are a couple of different kinds of people who come to my website demographically, um, all different kinds of people who are looking for information about STDs and who have STDs come from all different walks of life. Um, but the, There are people who don't know if they have an STD or not, and so they're looking to get information on typical symptoms, where to get testing, who to talk to if there are hotlines. So I provide that kind of basic information, and then the resources behind them, because I'm not a doctor... Uh, I have two degrees but not at all in a health <laughs> profession. I was an accountant, so now I'm doing this um, oddly enough. but yeah, so I provide all of that basic information where to find other additional resources. I always encourage people to do lots and lots of their own research. Don't stop at just my website. Um, but then there's also for then the other side of the coin are the people who are living with an STD like myself, the ones that um, are no are not curable. Some are curable, um, and some are lifelong, and general herpes is lifelong. So it's for people um, with HPV, general herpes, other kinds, HIV, all sorts of other kinds of lifelong STDs, what to do, really how to move forward, how to date exactly. How, when do? You, when should you tell someone you have an STD? And how do you tell someone when you decide or when you read, okay, this is when I really should start talking about this to this potential significant other, how the heck do I go about this conversation, the most awkward conversation in the world that nobody ever wants to have, all of those things, mm-hmm. as well as you know what to think about with friends and do you tell friends and family, what if they react negatively, how to, whether or not to internalize that, what to think about that, all of those things. So So my perspective, based on my experiences, negative and positive, majority positive, mm-hmm. all of that is there for people along with everyone else's stories too. there are um, we do what's called STD interviews so Mm -hmm. people fill out interviews it's two different kinds um, people who are living with or who have contracted an STD as well as interviews about people who love people with STDs so that um, people can hear how people who are in relationships or family members of those who have an STD what they how they perceive the situation how they perceive the relationship if it's changed their relationship That kind of thing. So there's a lot of information, a lot of wealth, a wealth of information on there, of course.
2: When, um, when you were dealing with having an STD, was this the kind of site essentially you wished would have been there, but maybe wasn't there?
10: Oh, yeah. There are some, there's lots of really great sexual health websites out there. um, And I refer to a lot of them in my references and resources sites. And I defer to a lot of them, too, because I don't always have the answers to everything, of course, because of my background um, but yes, I wish that there generally it stops at just kind of the plain, um, like the textbook information of here are the symptoms, here's where to go. But it doesn't give that second component of, well, what should I really think about myself? Should I embody the stigma and the names that I'm that I hear and all of the times you hear about people called weird crazy things you know on comedy and late night television and so that's that's that that other portion that i was never able to find and had nowhere to turn just didn't know whether i should believe what everybody else was saying or whether i should take a different approach so absolutely i really wish it could have been there but that's why i guess that's prime my primary reason for being here now
2: uh talk a little bit about, you You said that you give advice about being in a relationship and how you address that. How how do you address that, having an STD in a relationship?
10: Yeah, I know. It sounds crazy, <laughs> right? Um, and most people who approach me, I mean, it's just amazing that the stories that I've heard already. I just launched this in April and I have people sending me emails daily and sometimes hourly. They pour in um, and everyone has that same question. Do people really actually, are you able to date? Is it going to ruin my, my sex life? That kind of thing. Um, and there is a, there is a difference a bit. You really do have to take a little bit of a different approach. It's taught me to slow down and, um, one night stands are no longer ethical, practical, and, uh, they just don't happen in my life anymore. And, Mm -hmm. um, that's part of what got me in this mess to begin with. Uh, however, it's, it's all about looking at things, in, and again, in a different light and taking things slowly. Um, people don't date anymore, and nobody goes out and goes on multiple dates and gets to know people, or not not as many people as used to be. It's much more common to meet somebody at the club and take them home and hope something amounts from that. And I hear so much of that, um, but that just isn't practical if you're living with an STD. So this, the, the steps are to take things a little bit slower, get to know someone first. Um, and I say that... Ethically and morally, when you have to tell someone that you have an STD is before someone is at risk. So if you think you're going to get into um, any sort of physical situation in which you would be putting that person at risk, you need to sit the person down in advance of that situation um, and then telling them about it. It's it's again that's the most awkward conversation in the world to have. However, it usually goes a whole lot better. I always anticipate it being horrible. My heart races. And I've had an, any number of reactions. Sometimes, I, you know, I've called a so-and-so up and said, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you. Do you have a few minutes? Showed up at their home and said, you know, there's something I want to tell you. And I usually go about sharing my my story, what happened, how long I've had it, the facts about it. Then I share that there are resources online and encourage them to do their own research and let them know that I understand what I'm handing them is a ton of bricks yeah. and you know it's it's gonna be overwhelming and it's gonna take them a moment to decide how they wanna move forward, whether they want to pursue and continue a relationship or not. Um that's entirely up to them, of course. And I've had all sorts of reactions that, that of one of the best reactions was, you mean that's what that's all? You I thought you were gonna tell me you're pregnant or <laughs> <laughs> something was happening and it was some other guy's baby or, you know, something <laughs> crazy because I hadn't gotten into that situation a sexual relationship with them. So they couldn't imagine what I was about to approach them with, and uh, it's it's been overwhelmingly positive. Usually, if I've done my job of establishing some sort of foundation, people are willing to consider a risk because it is always going to be a risk. I haven't always transmitted it to other people. Um, but it is definitely an ongoing risk, and something that is a component of uh, a relationship going forward. So, of that kind of relationship, anyway, is an intimate one. So,
2: a lot of the the types of dating that you were talking about, the people who are going to clubs, you know, hooking up, that kind of thing, that's kind of more of a young, a, a college type atmosphere. Do sure. you think that colleges address or have the resources that that they're supposed to to to, to deal with that?
10: You know, I'm not certain, just because I'm not um connected with every college out there and all of their uh, public health. I know that a lot of colleges have on-site clinics. I've actually started to partner up with them um, on Twitter. I'm linked with a lot of them as well as Facebook, and they've started to follow and then outsource some of my information or send some of the people that they have that come in and test positive for things in my direction as as a beneficial, hey, this site might make you feel a little bit better about the situation thing. So I don't know. I, I guess I can't answer that question entirely. I think that there's sure, surely more that we can do, um, and that's why I'm doing this because I haven't found it myself yet in my research. But I know that people really are trying hard to, to approach the subject holistically.
2: And what I guess, what's the end goal with your project? What do you how do? You hope for it to expand, become something bigger. Um,
10: yeah, yeah, I have big dreams for it, really. Um, th- What I'd like to do first off is I need to become an official nonprofit, so I have to apply for nonprofit before the end of the year. Then I'd like to apply for some grants. With that grant money, I would like to establish a 24-hour hotline. My website is global, and I provide resources for, like, STD testing and such globally. So I'd like to provide a help hotline for people to call 24 hours a day globally free of charge. At that point, once I've established a hotline, Then I'd like to be able to distribute safer sex products, condoms, dental dams, lubrication, et cetera, either free of charge or based on income. The reason I need the hotline is so that people can call in, ask questions about what they should use, what's best for their situation, whichever practices they're engaging in. And then I'd like to provide um, testing. There's lots of at-home kits that you can purchase, but they're astronomical in cost. They're wonderful, run by great websites. I link to a lot of them on my website. However, for a college student to get testing, if they don't want to go to a clinic, they're embarrassed and want to come and want to do it in the safety of their own home, I'd like to provide that for lower income, um, you know, either free of charge or income-based. And then, again, that hotline would support those questions and people who end up testing positive. But I need to have that resource established first before I start providing things and not allowing or providing a place for people to turn. So, in the long run, that's what I'm hoping for, but that's that's um, a little ways down the line.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and chat with us today. Thank you so
10: much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: It's been a pleasure speaking to you. That was Janelle Marie, administrator of the award-winning STD Project website. Uh, you can find out more about the project at www.thestdproject.com or .org. You're
1: listening to
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
0: Hey, what floor are you going to?
2: Oh, uh, three. Thanks.
11: Hey, didn't we, uh, have...
0: Yeah, that one class. Yeah,
11: that's so funny (laughs) to
2: see you, because I (coughs) thought maybe we could, uh, would you ever want to, um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye.
0: What? No. Oh, I
2: just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex in my
1: pocket. that's Uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Uh. in your eye.
2: Is that weird?
3: No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh.
2: Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free.
1: Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at
0: cdc.gov slash hands. Impact 89FM.
2: Last week, the findings of a meta-study from Stanford University suggested that there was no significant health benefit of organic food versus conventional food. Here to give us insight on organic foods is Rhonda Bakram, a staff nutritionist and dietitian at Olin Health Center. Uh, welcome to Exposure.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Um so Let's start off, I guess, kind of, what is organic
5: food? Ah, well, you know, for a long time, and I've been in this field for over 30 years, it was really whoever wanted to call themselves (laughs) organic. But finally, and I think it was 1990, there was actually a Standards Act passed where it had to be grown under certain standards. And there's a certification bureau that makes sure that farmers who want to classify their products as organic actually meet those standards in terms of how it's... um, farmed, how it's fertilized, how the soil is treated, how it's packaged, how um, all of those kind of uh, parameters have to be met, unless, and there's this one clause, if they sell less than $5,000 a year of a product, they can don't have to meet the, because it's expensive to have someone come in and certify you, and if you only sell $5,000 worth, <laughs> it's probably not worth it. So a local stand, for example, could say they're organic, but maybe they're not technically, officially, meet all the criteria.
2: So the study says that it has no – that organic food versus conventional or whatever Mm else you'd buy in the grocery store has no nutrition – it's not more nutritious.
5: What does that mean? (laughs) Well, they looked at nutrient content of foods that were organically produced, especially produce, and foods that were conventionally farmed with possible pesticide use. And really, this was not a surprise to me, so I'm surprised people are so surprised. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because and I think they specifically looked at vitamin A, C, and E, but also at other nutrient content, and really you're not when it's something is grown, for example, if you have asparagus and it's grown, um, the nutrient content is the same as whether you product a vitamin supplement you know or all natural or not mm-hmm. it's either vitamin A or it isn't it's either vitamin <laughs> C or it isn't, and so the production of that is going to be not really going to be different depending on how it is uh, produced organically or not organically. So the nutrient content would not really be – I wouldn't expect it to be different. That would have more to do with how you farm it, how long it's sort of in sort of transit, how it's cooked, how it's stored in your home. Those, pro- those could possibly have more to do with the nutrient content when you finally eat it, but not at the production level.
2: So a lot of people, at least according to um, a Nielsen study, said that they purchased organic food because it was healthier. Is organic food healthier?
5: They purchase it because they perceive it to be healthier. And if you think about the word healthy, it's really not a well-defined term (laughs) in our culture on many levels in terms of nutrition. Uh, And people want to, you know, I think it's all how you market something and people want to believe that somehow it's going to affect you nutritionally. I think where it has some play, and I think the study bears this out, is that the pesticide, pesticide content of, of foods that are organically produced tends to be lower. And there was also a part where they did a study with children after five days, the urine content of pesticides. But the other thing that they do say is that n- only in a very small percentage of the products in the studies that they looked at was the did the pesticide content exceed the maximum allowable lo- level mm-hmm. that has been set by the government. So even if it had some in there, it didn't have... Um, nowhere near. Nowhere near the amount. And so it still was considered a generally recognized as safe amount. Um, the other thing is they brought up the antibiotic mm-hmm. um, part of it. And that terms of that if you have antibiotics in animals and milk and dairy and those kind of things, then we, we may become more resistant. The bacteria bacteria in there was more resistant to antibiotics, I think, with three different antibiotics, but they also raise the question, perhaps it's not that it's in the products, but the fact that we tend to overuse antibiotics in humans. <laughs> which has more of the building up of a resistance.
2: So you're at the grocery store, mm-hmm. you have you have the choice to buy organic, and organic tends to be more expensive. There's And there's a lot of products specifically marketed as being organic. Or you can buy conventionally grown food, which mm-hmm. is typically lower priced. What, I, as a nutritionist, what, what do you do? What do you recommend?
5: Well, I think you have to look at your budget for number one. If it means you're going to buy produce that's cheaper but you'll get the benefit of eating produce, then I would say go with the less expensive one. You can rinse it off. Okay, there are lots of ways. You know, I definitely recommend washing produce when you get it, just so if there's any residue on, on the outside, or just people handle it, or any bacteria and so on. So you just wash it off. I would also recommend, I'm a big in favor of the slow food movement in terms of you buy local. If you can buy a Michigan product, I would buy a Michigan product and support Michigan farmers um, and think about it that way also. Also, you know, maybe look and choose if you can think about if I want to buy some organic, for example, do I want to pick the ones that are less expensive or the ones that have, um, don't have peel, like peeling so that I can't take the peeling off where the residue might be, for example. So I might sort of pick and choose which ones that I'm going to really decide to budget. Because if you look at the, cost that we spend in this country. Mm -hmm. In 13 years, it went from 3.6 to, uh, I think, over 20 billion that we spend in this country on organic. And I don't think people really understand. They buy it out of faith, not really understanding (laughs) what it means. And I do think there's a a cost that marketing in terms of people are willing to spend more if it's labeled organic, Mm -hmm. without really thinking, are they getting any benefit from it? And marketers, I mean, people who sell products know that. Mm-hmm. So
2: really, it's it's kind of up to the consumer's choice really and their is. own, their own yeah. preference. Yes.
5: Um, I so. really believe that. And I think if you eat a variety of foods, you eat foods that come from a variety of places. And um, I think that if you do that, you're probably going to do okay in terms of obtaining nutrients and, and limiting the risk of the product <laughs> that you're eating.
2: That was Rhonda Bachram, staff nutritionist and dietitian at Olin Health Center, talking about conventional versus organic food.
1: You're listening to Impact
2: Exposure on 89FM. This Saturday marks the start of Hispanic Heritage Month and Lansing starting the celebration off with the Tejano Latin Music Festival in Old Town. Here to talk about Tejano music is the Tejano sound band.
4: Welcome to Exposure. Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, oh. Hello.
2: And we have Johnny and Richard here. Um, Go ahead, introduce yourselves, um, and tell me a little bit about your role in the band.
4: Okay. My name is Johnny Vasquez, and I'm the leader of the band. And uh, I play accordion, and I also do backup singing.
7: Uh, My name is Richard Vasquez. Uh, I'm a guitar player in the band and also leader of the band. And I have fun with it, I guess. (laughs)
2: All right, so how did Down on Sand how did this band come to be?
4: Actually, um, the band started, well, we started at a very young age. Um, I started out playing with my brothers, um, my uh, older brothers, and and uh, just now, just me and Richard, my brother not, that's here now, uh, we um, um, stayed playing, and uh, we've been playing. Uh, actually, yesterday was uh, our anniversary with a band that was uh, 18 years
2: Eighteen years. Yeah, wow. we're celebrating our anniversary. You guys aren't sick of each other yet? No, no. <laughs> you sure? No. Um, so, how did you learn about Tejana music? How did how did the, how were you introduced to it as children?
7: Well, I think when we first started out, there wasn't no internet to start with. Um, we used to. Have family. We still do have families in Texas. We still go up there in Texas. You know, we hear all this music going on, and we sort of pick a lot of that stuff just by hearing and listening to it. And we sort of got into doing that, and that's that's how we came about. You know, trying to do something like that. You know, and we liked it, and we stuck with it.
2: Um. So Tejano music it originates in Texas, but what is unique about Tejano style that differentiates it from other styles?
4: I think, um, uh. Personally, my opinion, I think, uh, the accordion has to do with it. Uh, we, that's what I play, the accordion, and, and, uh, a lot of Tejano, Tejano bands, around here anyway, in the Midwest, uh, they all, every everyone has an accordion, a accordion player, so, that, right there, I think that's unique about, uh, Tejano music. So, so.
2: it kind of mixes a little bit of, exactly. of a polka with exactly. a little mm-hmm. bit of,
7: uh, <clears throat> almost, uh, almost similar, uh, like a polish music but sounds a little bit but not quite but it relates a little bit to that I think you know
4: it's between polish music and I think um uh country music because of of the lyrics it's if you listen to the lyrics it's every uh just about every song's got a a little story to it
2: can you give me an example of a, of a song, uh, a story that may be told through the lyrics of one of your guys' songs?
4: <clears throat> well, we, this is our third CD that, uh, we just got out. Um, I'm trying to think what song it. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've got, a uh, a, like, um, 10 or 12 songs that I've written over the years. Um, it's just stuff that I've gone through, I guess, over my years. And, uh, uh, with uh, things that happened to me with girls and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's what, I guess, inspired me to write songs. <laughs> um,
2: so you play accordion. Uh, yes. <laughs> How, as a, as a kid, was it a desire of yours to play accordion? Because most kids, you know, are um, or- You know
7: what, actually- there's a long story to that. Uh, <laughs> actually,
4: uh, uh, I was a drummer. I started out as a drummer, and my I had another, my older brother played accordion and uh he he um well he when I was playing uh, at a very young age he was a he was a teenager, so he wasn't practicing like he was supposed to so when when he was supposed to practice, I go and grab the accordion and I started working with it. now another thing about the accordions is not like a piano accordion that what I'm talking about these are uh diatonic accordions where in and out you have two different sounds it's not it's almost like a same thing as a harmonica. That's that's the type of uh, uh, the sound it is, and 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 I do all that. So and,
2: from from drums to accordion,
4: <laughs> yeah, and, and to repairing my my own stuff, and. And,
7: so. and what do you play? In the, you know? I'm a guitar player. Um, we, I ha- I play a, uh, the guitar and and acoustic. Now the acoustic is not like a regular guitar. It's called a bajo sexto. Um. I'm playing a quinto, which the difference of those two is that once a 10-string, once a 12-string. So I'm I'm playing a 10-string, and that's way different than the guitar. Your guitar chords are a whole lot different, you know, than than the bajo. You know, that that came about, like, when I was younger, watching other people back then play, you know, and I used to like the sound of that, and I wanted to learn one, so I ended up getting one back then. That's back in 69 I started with one of those, and now we we got in our group and I I use that and the guitar. I always have both of them in the stage and it all depends what kind of music we're playing. There's two diff- if we're going to use the accordion a lot, you know, like I use that what they call the bajo. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then if I'm going to use they we use our keyboards, so we got a keyboard player, then I use the guitar a lot with that, you know. And then, so is that type of guitar something
2: that's unique to Tejano music? Yes,
7: yes, um about a lot of people, a lot of bands, I should say
4: Actually, yeah, a lot yeah. of uh, there's a lot of four-piece bands, and when we when I'm talking four-piece band, I'm, you're talking about a bajo uh, the that de, that mm-hmm. guitar that uh, ten string or twelve string, and uh, accordion and uh, drums. It's only four, but us as we're, we're more Tejano, and so we use keyboard, saxophone, accordion. It's it's bigger. It's bigger. Um, and we can we're yeah. versatile. We can we can go with uh, just four guys, or we can either go with the seven or six whatever it is. so when,
7: when we go out uh to clubs or wherever we're playing you know you can always tell by the people like what what kind of music they want to hear because once you get the group of the people going mm-hmm. then we want to we're going to stick to that because what the people want you know because we We play like two different kinds, two, three different kinds of music, you know.
2: Well, let's take a listen to one of Mm -hmm. your songs now. Uh, Do you want to introduce one of the tracks off your album? Yes.
4: uh, Actually, it's a single that just uh, came out uh, actually about a couple of months ago. And the title of the song is uh, Cierra Los Ojos. It says uh, Close Your Eyes. And uh, also that song has a video to it. We We shot a video in Toledo, Ohio to this song. All right.
2: Well, let's take a listen then. We we're just listening to a song by the Tejano sound band they're joining me in studio or at least two of the members uh Johnny and Richard how many how many of there are you typically
4: actually there's uh six of us and sometimes seven we do have a um saxophone player actually um he, he he's a professor here that uh, saxophone player and he did all the recording on, on this our third cd and can I say the name <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. He's a professor here, and his name is Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera, and he's amazing. I love to hear him play. He's and he did uh a... He's been helping us out, and whenever he can, a lot of times he's out of the state or out of the country, and he does travel a lot. And the other times he's with us.
2: So you said you just came out with your third album pretty recently. Um, what was it like working on the album? The the third one is it a little bit easier each time you go? Or...
4: Um, no. As actually, we have a, a real good engineer, um, and um, his name is Rolando Revilla. He lives in Toledo. And that's where we do all, mostly our recording at his house, and it's our studio because he's part of our band, and we can do anything we want. We go there and we do a little thing one week, and next week we'll go at it or take take. Stuff off and and we have time to work with at the studio, so we have have a um, a lot of fun recording.
2: Is is there a big um, following here in the Midwest for Tejano music? Actually, or? there
4: is a, there is a lot of groups here, and uh, it, actually here in Lansing, there's about four or five Tejano bands, and um, and um, uh, plus. Uh, um, so, where can people if they
2: want to catch you live? Um, where can they catch you within the next week?
4: Uh well, well Saturday. Uh, this uh, we're going to be here at the um Cesar Chavez um um uh, festival that they're having um
2: what what is your website if people wanted to find more information
4: um <clears throat> well actually right now uh, uh we're, we are setting back up our our website but it's it's uh it's um www i think I'm pretty pretty sure.
2: All right. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming in. Thank you
4: so thank much you for
7: having us.
2: It was a pleasure to talk to you today. That was the Tejano Sound Band. They will be performing as part of the Lansing Cesar It Chavez Presents, the second Annual Tejano Latino Music Festival in Old Town this Saturday. Taking us out, another song from the band, this one featuring a, a little bit of Johnny on accordion.
1: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure.
2: Earlier today, panelists from around the world gathered in the Residential College of Arts and Humanities Lookout Gallery to discuss the exhibit Weavings of War, looking at how and why fabric art is used to remember traumatic experiences that result from war. Several of the pieces displayed in the exhibit depict events of September 11th. And today on the phone, I'm joined by Marsha McDowell, who is a curator of one of the original national touring exhibit um, of this project. So welcome to Exposure. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So you're, you were curator for the original project. Talk a little bit about how that project came to be.
6: Sure. Um, I have to give an initial credit to a woman named Ariel. Zeitlin. Uh, She is uh, an individual who's based in Ariel Zeitlin Cook. Um, uh, Uh, Ariel is based in the New York area, and she came up with this original idea of putting together an exhibition of textiles, mostly done by women, that in one way or another um, give voice to women's experiences in war, the reflections of war, and... When she brought that idea forward to a New York City-based organization called City Lore, they in turn turned to two entities, um, Michigan State University Museum, it has had a long tradition of activist art exhibitions, and then Vermont Folklife Center, who was interested in doing some collaborating. So it, essentially, it was seeded, an idea seeded by but then developed by a consortium of individuals based at three different organizations.
2: So talk a little bit about what the exhibit looks like. So essentially there's a bunch of different pieces that are all made from fabric relating to war. How does that look and what's the variety and and difference in these pieces?
6: Well, the the variety is um, extensive. And you've got everything from war rugs that were made in Afghanistan that depict, um, fighter planes and bombs to pieces done by Hmong, um, Laotian, uh, Laotian Hill Tribe that, um, during the Vietnam War were, uh, sided with the U.S. government and therefore became a target of Hmong. Um, genocide. And so, the textile pieces done by Hmong date from maybe, um, what now, 30 years ago? Four, no, born in that. Geez, uh, 50 years ago. What am I saying here? Um, anyway, the textile pieces that were done by Hmong Americans and Hmong living in refugee camps in Thailand, uh, it, because one kind of war experience, the Afghan rugs, another war, another cultural expression. And I think each one of the pieces in the exhibition shows the, um, the marriage of the textile techniques and practices of specific cultural groups, as well as distinctly different experiences with war and trauma. So you're combining different wars, different cultures, different textile traditions, so that the exhibition has a wide range of, of interesting perspectives through the lens of mostly women using needle and thread.
2: Now, um, one today is September 11th, um, the anniversary of the the. Uh, terrorist attacks um, on the twin towers. One of the rugs um, pretty visually depicts this attack. It's a it's a very strong image of of the the planes crashing into the towers. Can you talk a little bit about this piece specifically, and uh, perhaps give us a little bit of history behind it? Is it the
6: one um, made in South Africa? I
2: think
6: it is. Um, well. I know there is the one that was done uh, in South Africa by a group of women embroiderers called the Karoo Workers, and they are a group of women in the northern province. And I think what is so amazing about this particular piece, which incidentally was used last year by the New York Times as an image, a photo image in a gallery, that they produced on 9-11, this particular image shows the very same scenes that were being broadcast by CNN to around the world, and whether you were in the U.S., whether you were sitting in New York City, or Cape Town, South Africa, you were seeing these very same iconic dramatic images. And I think it's really it it shows the worldwide impact that the communication of war images or violent images can have on um, individuals who have access to this kind of media. It doesn't matter if they're located in a rural part of South Africa, they're seeing the same things. And trying to use their particular artistic needlework traditions to grapple with what they're seeing, even though they were far removed from that incident. It did nonetheless impact
2: them. Why do you think it is that fabric seems to be the the, the common thread and medium that these people are using to depict war? How, how does this differ from, say, painting a picture of war? Um, is, is it the process of... It's
6: the cleaning? process, yes. Because it's, I, I think, again, back to the fact that some of these pieces were done by women, um, and women in more rural areas and women uh, who have thread at the ready. They have grown up in cultures and communities where they have at hand needle and thread. So if you're going to grab something, some... Materials to do a depiction of war. What would you have? You wouldn't. You wouldn't have um, uh, sculptural uh, equipment. You wouldn't have oil paints. What you would have is cloth and thread and a needle. And so, it's, it's not surprising that so many women have turned to textiles in order to. So it's very portable too. like they're lugging around things that are massive pieces of equipment or expensive uh, pieces of equipment to make their art. Their art is right there, ready to go. Their materials are right there, ready to go.
2: Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with me today.
6: I'm delighted to have done on I hope everybody gets over
2: to see the exhibition. It's terrific. I was speaking with Marcia McDowell, curator for the original National Touring Exhibit and professor of art and art history and museum studies. Also, she's currently a curator at Michigan State University's museum. Uh, the Residential College of Arts and Humanities is hosting the Weavings of War exhibits until September 21st. Gallery hours are from noon to two, Monday through Fridays.
1: You're listening to
2: Impact
0: Exposure.
2: This year, River Rock Theatre will open its season with a controversial and award-winning musical, Spring Awakening. Based on a 19th century German playwright, Frank Wedekind's infamous play, the show explores the lives of teenagers on the cusp of adulthood, discovering their sexuality. Today, I'm joined in studio by cast members and the director from the River Rock Theater's production. So to start, if I could have you guys just go around the table, introduce yourselves and your role in the play. Starting over
12: here. I'm Kelly, and I'm the director of Spring Awakening at Riverwalk Theatre. I'm
11: Graham, I'm playing the adult male roles.
2: I'm Adam, I play Melchior.
0: And I'm Brittany, and I'm playing
12: Vendla.
2: So, for those people who haven't seen the play, anyone want to offer a brief synopsis, but no spoilers? You want me to? Okay. I've had to do this Kat like Kelly seven times. Yes. Going to do this. <laughs>
12: From the director. Um, what it is, it's, it's a coming-of-age story that's set in 1890s Germany, and it's about teenagers dealing with questions of life, about relationships, about sexuality, about authority. And it's set so they have the backdrop of a present-day rock concert. And so when they go into their own personal world of thought and emotion, they sing, and it's like... 90s punk pop type stuff and they whip out microphones and there's great lights and stuff like that and so so it's a it's a a traditional coming-of-age story with a really cool twist with the music element
2: can you guys talk a little bit more about that music this idea of really modern kind of rock style music and then we've got kind of this old-timey um setting and, and place and time and how that dynamic works throughout the
8: play? Yeah, the two worlds are essentially independent from one another. Um, the music is very angst-filled. Um, it's basically the kids' expression of how they feel toward their their current society or their current surroundings, um, and that's very well represented in the lighting. Um, there's definite shifts between between the um, the you know the old time of 1890s i mean that's kind of a a um misrepresentation of the the musical a lot of people would generally assume like oh this is like one of those old lame shows and it's (laughs) totally the furthest thing from that because the music is absolutely uh forward and current and modern and uh and the story really is too it's it's something that's relatable on all levels through all ages.
2: Talk a little bit about that relatability, um, as characters. Do you feel like you can relate to your characters in the play or that you've ever had those kind of experiences?
11: Um, me personally, not really. I'm playing an adult or a bunch of like a handful of adult characters. Um, and I'm 22. So, uh, you know, I don't have kids. Um, you know, I've, I guess I've taught some people stuff so i can relate on that but not really which is kind of weird but it's been a really cool experience in having to like find that in myself to go you know come on stage and be a believable adult for a cast of kids
2: well i mean the adults in this play are kind of clueless um they're not necessarily the best parents i guess can you talk a little bit about having to get into that character or, or kind of play that role?
11: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've seen the play a few times, and I, you know, the parents, just the adults in general, are kind of painted to be the antagonists of the show. You know, they're clueless, they're um, they're dumb, they're you know, rigid, they're over the top. You know, they're all these things. Um, and having to play the adults now has kind of put a really interesting spin on it for me. In that, yes, they are. Clueless, yes, they don't understand, yes, they are the antagonists, but at the same time, I'm a lot more sympathetic towards them now because, or some of them, I'll say, (laughs) because not all of them are great people. (laughs) Um, I'm a lot more sympathetic towards them now, uh, both the men and the female uh, adults, um, simply because even though what they do spurs a lot of the action into the play, it spurs a lot of uh, you know, emotion that causes the char- you know, the teenage characters to go off and do what they do. Um, it's not entirely their fault. They're more a victim of their time than they are bad people.
2: And you too, Brittany and Adam, <laughs> you guys are playing leads in the in the play. Um mm-hmm. talk a little about how you personally relate to your characters.
0: Um, for me, uh, Vendela is very naive and doesn't know much about um the i guess the sexual realm of life but she she really comes to know more about herself and about being more of an adult in general and just learns and
10: grows so much throughout the whole show
2: and, you,
8: Adam? and uh Melchior is a very um questioning individual he is the type of person to to not necessarily accept the status quo and just go with the flow um i feel that that's um relatable to me in some sense i feel that i mean in general with all the all of the characters in the show there are very real i mean the subject matter is very real in that we are all able to relate to it in some way shape or form uh it's basically a lot of these kids are going through um through difficulties that that everyone alike would have gone through in puberty and, and whatever else and just kind of a discovering oneself and, and, and really creating a sense of identity, um, which I think is like a, an overall relatable theme for everyone.
2: Now, this play is kind of known for being a little racy um, in regard to language and, uh, and, and manner and, and how things are presented. Did you make any major departures from the original um, Broadway play and script as a director? <laughs>
12: I did, actually, um, and it's funny because I've been asked about this a couple of times, but in the original Broadway and the national touring in most productions, there's there's nudity because there's a there's a sex scene, there's a lovemaking scene, and it's kind of the staple of the show. Ooh, you get to see, you know, you get to see this. And in when I decided to do the show, I felt that it was almost gratuitous and that it was just for shock value, and I thought, let's see what this scene does without taking the lead actress's top off, um, and <laughs> basically, and, and see see what is at the heart of the scene without just exposing skin for the shock value of it, and, and, and so there is no female anatomy exposed, but you do get to see the backside of a Mariana Adam over there, <laughs> and... I've been asked about that being a double standard. Why, you know, why do we get to see the man and in, in the act of he has to pull his pants down and she doesn't have to take her top off. It's, it was a weird, and the three of us talked about it and, and decided, like, what really what what's most comfortable and what makes this scene most real and not just expose and ooh, you know, we get to go see this raunchy, you know, show and, and so I, I think in that that's the only concession we made. There's still a whole lot of language. There's Still, some adult situations, and so it's definitely rated R. It's not for it's not for the younger kids. It's not a family show. Um, but that that was my that was my one change, and it wasn't necessarily for censorship, but just for content. I liked
2: it better without it. Uh, what, is, what is your guys' favorite part of the show? Song wise, scene wise, what do you enjoy doing? Well,
0: I don't want to spoil anything, but those you've known is definitely my favorite song. It's the most meaningful in my mind because of how the story ends up in the end. And it's one it's the last song before our final curtain call song.
11: Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I have a couple moments that I really like in the show. Um, but it's kind of weird because coming into it and even still now, a lot of my favorite stuff is stuff that I'm not participating in. Thanks, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a really big fan of Bitch of a Living is a a song at the beginning of the play, which I think kind of everyone who's ever really been a teenager can really relate to. Um, It's something I relate to a lot, even now, you know, when things get down and, you know, you get kind of overwhelmed and it's, ah, you know, Um, but I think as an actor... My favorite moment is a song called Left Behind, which is later in the act, and I don't really want to explain exactly what it's about, because it kind of gives away a big moment in the show. Um, but it, it's made me appreciate my characters a little more, and it's kind of developed a very personal connection with me. So.
2: And I guess, what do you guys hope Lansing audiences take away from all the effort and, uh, that you guys have put into this show? I hope, personally,
12: as the director, that they feel the timeless, timelessness of the show. The show was written about 120 years ago, and the themes are so relevant today. It's eerie. I mean, even after I submitted the show and decided to direct it, things have come up that it's like, wow, this, this, is, this is crazy that these, objects, or these, uh, these subjects are still in the media and in our lives now, 120 years later, and, and just how timeless this story is.
11: Um, I think it, or I hope that it, uh, instigates conversation, um, whether it be between parents and kids, uh, because that's a big thing of the show or just between, you know, the audience members in general and them going out and being able to talk about this stuff. Cause the content is a little racy and it's kind of harsh there, but it's not, it's not being edgy for the sake of being edgy. It's edgy in the sense that a lot of the stuff they cover is taboo but it's revealing a harsh reality and i th- I hope that people recognize that it's not trying to be offensive it's trying to present a harsh reality of things that existed then and still exist now in this world and i hope people can see that and talk about
2: that all right well i'd like to thank you all for coming in and chatting today
12: thank, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. very much
2: that was cast members and the director of the River Rock Theater's production of Spring Awakening. The musical will run September 13th through 16th and 20th through 23rd at the River Rock Theater. To find out more, you can go to www.riverslocktheater.com.
1: I come to one and all, she said, give me that hand, please, and the itch you can't control. Let me teach you how to handle
11: all the sadness in your soul. Oh, we'll work that silver magic, then we'll aim
1: it at the wall. That love may make you blind, kid But I wouldn't mind at all
2: That was the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening there singing that track. And now it's time for the Michigan storytelling segment this week. Daniel Danielle Lutz from the MSU Slam team brings us this poem.
9: For the Michigan storytelling segment, this is Danielle Lutz from the MSU Slam poetry team. You were never one to take to bird signs, ignoring the nest you built in the space between your lungs. You have twigs for marrow, and I would think you fragile, and the pockmarks came from beaks whatever you like to pretend at night. It was the thirty-year anniversary of AIDS, and you were there the night it was born, and you could call needles talons, and I've seen the way you take flight after too many doses of what doctors prescribed and too many more of what they didn't. I told you to read fables, to look at glassy pictures of thorned lions, and all you ever took from it was the one story without a moral, because you found the one man that didn't care, and if you had feathers, you still wouldn't fly, saying it's only two less than a pound of bricks, and concrete belongs on feet on lake beds. You were never... One to look at the sky because clouds take shape sometimes and you blocked out primary school, forgetting what colours are. I would tell you Blue Jane, what stuck in your mind wouldn't be Azure Did you forget your pills? I left them for you in the same place I always have, where I left flowers and vases, but they were already dead because you are scared to water something with petals, and if I told you to call your father you would turn away, and the father of your daughters once conquered mountains, but you don't believe me, and you've never been pregnant but you you did cry in a bathroom stall once. I saw an eagle yesterday. It flew tilted, one wing dipping toward valleys. If only you were taller, then your head would rise above shoulders instead of hunched, instead of pearl and oyster hiding, instead of cowering dogtail, instead of ostrich head in sand. Your hair is auburn. Don't bury it in the ground. Do not let the world be too much for you. I will hold your burden as I held your hand on the nights you couldn't hold yourself up. But the nights I remember are when I saw your teeth knot in a grimace. When your breathing shakes, it's only nesting birds rustling.
1: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
9: Impact Exposure. Impact.